0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, January 9th, 2023. On the show today, news, new surveys, and listener questions. And in our main segment, newfound video of Disneyland's first stage coaches sparks Jim to talk about what Frontierland was like back when the park opened. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks how the mayor in the movie Jaws is still the mayor in Jaws 2. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: Oh, you're talking about Murray Hamilton, our (laughs) character actor who played Larry Vaughn, the the mayor in those two films. I get that no one wants the job, Jim, but still. (laughs) Well, but the thing that kills me is that when they were prepping Jaws 3... They actually reached out to Murray Hamilton and said, hey, you, you want to come back and play the mayor again? And it's like, isn't that the one that's going to be set in Florida? So what? He's on vacation and he happens to be a place where a, a great white shows up. <laughs> he also, in this same sort of window of time, starred in the movie version of Amityville Horror. So if you see Murray Hamilton, you know, it's a, I'm going Run in the opposite other way. direction. Yeah, Run no, the other no. way. Sharks, possessed houses. Possession. Exactly. No, thank you. You know. so.
0: I, I wonder if he said if he had trouble like selling his house later on like, <laughs> and I guarantee you potential buyers this house is not haunted that was just a movie uh, and then I, a- I would wink at the end of the video like yeah ah. <laughs> god <laughs> alright Joe. let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at Disney Dish mm-hmm. to bandcamp.com thanks to new subscribers Melissa Ionetta, Bruce Lobar Casey Lucas and MJ Lochtfeld and longtime subscribers Mom Tink 3, Katie Curler, and Michael Orifice. Jim, these are the folks responsible for cleaning all of the Aerosmith concert artifacts during the current rock and roller coaster refurbishment at Disney's Hollywood Studios. They say the big surprises so far include finding a previously unknown live recording of Dream On from October of 1972 at Katie's in Boston, and that Joe Perry's hair somehow gets on everything. True story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that evidently is the real reason behind the, the rehab. It, it, Re- it's, refurbishment, yeah. right? it's all it, everywhere. everywhere. It gets everywhere. everywhere.
0: Okay. And speaking of that, Jim, let's do the news. The Disney Dish News, folks, is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. And speaking of booking, Jim, mm-hmm. Disney has released some discounts last week. And it's the first big set of post-pandemic discounts. That we've seen. So for Disney World, Jim, mm. Disney announced something like a modified dining plan discount for summer twenty twenty three travel. If you book a non discounted hotel room and tickets for travel between June twenty fifth and September fourteenth, and I am simplifying this because you know with, any, with every Disney offer, Jim, there is fine print and oh, dates sure, sure, change. Sure. But so, but this is broadly speaking what it is. So between June twenty fifth and September fourteenth, Disney will give you a preloaded gift card with uh, fifty dollars per night in value. If you stay at a value resort, $100 per night if you stay at a moderate resort or a cabin, and $150 a night if you stay at a deluxe or D B C villa. So Jim, my question here is this, and this is actually a question I got from some friends in the financial community. Isn't this a little early to be discounting
1: summer? Yeah. I mean, June 23rd through September 14th. That's high season, right? That's literally the highest of high season? It used to be high season. But these days, summer is not what
0: it used to be Mm -hmm. in terms of of travel. Like the first week of June, like Mm -hmm. the first week of summer vacation is is still big, right? Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of people who do that. But after that, Jim, we've noticed for a bunch of years, and this is even true Mm pre-pandemic, that summer is not as busy as it used to be. In fact, I think uh, pre-pandemic... One of the trends that we were tracking was that if you look at average wait times in October, Hmm. they were actually higher than average wait times in like July or
1: August. But how much of that is related to the fact that Disney has done a a pretty wonderful job of, oh, you're going to Walt Disney World between August and October, have you heard about Mickey's Not So Scary? Or if right. you're going from, you know, from November. Or food and wine or you Yeah, know, something. you know, it's just they have done a good job that away. way mm. But that's still intriguing that we're this far out. You and I have been paying attention to what's going on in the news and the story that just broke, for example, yesterday about the 18,000 people that Amazon is anticipating laying off. Is that... Again, everybody sort of still tapping the brake, you know, about, you know, their future plans and that sort of thing because of this may or may not happen recession.
0: All right. So I just told Jim something that I can't say on the air. But, Jim, that's how quickly business fell off. Right. I think this addresses that issue. Like, I think Disney's definitely seen Mm -hmm. a decrease in, number one, dining revenue. Mm -hmm. Right. I think people... People aren't going to cut back on theme park tickets. They're not going to cut back on hotels. But they can swap out table service restaurants for quick service restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. And they can substitute a hamburger mm-hmm. for a $55 steak. So I think this offer around dining specifically tells us mm-hmm. two things. One, dining has dining um, revenue has softened mm-hmm. in Walt Disney World, and they're trying to, to goose it. And number two, I think... Yeah, they're looking at summer. The other reason why I think summer is interesting, Jim, is this. Mm -hmm. It's a poorly guarded secret that Tron is supposed to open officially in April. That was the last date I heard with previews either in February or March, depending on which way the wind is blowing today, right? Mm -hmm. So Disney doesn't need to discount anything for... Easter. Number one, Easter and spring break are already super crowded. Mm -hmm. People have made those plans a long time ago. When you add in something like a new ride, like Tron opening up, I don't think Disney needs any special incentive to fill up whatever remaining hotel rooms there were for spring break in March and Easter and April. But beyond that, Mm -hmm. right, we've talked before about the fact that Disney's really got nothing beyond Tron to open. Once that initial thing that, um, once that initial PR push fades away, Mm -hmm. What are they going to do for the middle part of the year? To your point, in the the second half of the year, they've got the Halloween parties and those are successful. And they've got the Christmas parties, and those are successful, right? But what have they got? What do they got for summer? More importantly, what do they have for summer that's going to incent people to come to Central Florida in July?
1: Yes, the sun's good close personal friend.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where it's like they if they give you seven hundred and fifty dollars in ice cream vouchers that would send people right that's what you're going to need yeah okay. so i think this is actually a pretty solid offer number one it's the first i think it's the first dining related offer that the disney has done for us consumers mm-hmm. since the pandemic so it's important in that respect but the second thing is is it tells you by the dates that they're given and the specific nature of the resort it tells you where the where disney is seeing soft demand and that's why I think it's uh, it's important. Also, I think uh, Disney released a um, room only discount, or getting ready to do room only discounts as well. So it's um, this one's actually May to July. So again, the uh, the post Easter summer area, you can get thirty percent off of um, deluxe resorts and DVCs, twenty five percent at the moderates, and twenty percent at the values. Now those these two offers can't be combined, uh, okay. of course. But uh, but yeah, so there's there's definitely some softening going on there. One of these moments where you,
1: you begin to wonder, Bob Iger regret picking up that phone?
0: <laughs> Speaking of Bob Iger, I'll, I'll have to tell you. I have, I have so many off-the-record off, off the record stories i tell you. But I have a an off-the-record bet that I made with someone on Wall Street about Bob Iger. I'll mm. tell you about it when we're done. Okay. <laughs> All right. Jim, uh, other news. Disney After Hours lineup has been set now for Hollywood Studios. Uh, it's basically every open attraction in the park that's open during the day. So every ride. So Runaway Railway, Star Tours. Galaxy's Edge Rides, all of the rides in Toy Story Land, uh, Rock and Roller Coaster, Tower of Terror. But also, Jim, Star Wars Launch Bay is going to be open for this, which is kind of interesting. Also, they're running two shows, uh, Disney Movie Magic at 11.25 p.m. Mm-hmm. and Wonderful World of Animation at 11.45, so consecutive shows there. Both of these events for January are already sold out, so the one on the 11th is sold out. The ones for the January 18th and 25th still have tickets, but I'm told like they're super close to be sold out. Then we've got uh, two dates in February, uh, a bunch in March, and then some in April. Also, the Magic Kingdom has some after-hours events as well. So
1: yeah, that, uh, that's looking good for Disney. I mean, I get it's after-hours, you have less time in the park, but let's be honest, the place is semi-private. And and there's yeah. a lot of folks who actually believe, for example, Batu, you know, looks better with its nighttime lighting package.
0: I think most Disneyland's uh, look better at night. For, I think Sunset Boulevard, I think you'll agree with this, Sunset Boulevard yeah. looks better at night as well. There we go. And it's it's only slightly more mm-hmm. expensive than a one-day ticket mm-hmm. to the park. But if you add in Genie and individual lightning lane, it's mm-hmm. either less expensive or about the same. And I really think you could get all of these rides in during the after-hours event. Like if you just ran from ride to ride, mm-hmm. you could you could probably do it.
1: Given that factor and the price point, I know, well yeah. worth looking into. All right, Jim, we have time for some surveys. Uh,
0: First, I want to point out that our friend Kevin writes in to say that along with Disney not allowing you to enter zero on some survey questions, Spirit Airlines, Jim, Mm -hmm. is not to be outdone. Kevin writes in with this Spirit Airlines survey question that says, not counting your most recent trip, Mm -hmm. how many total flights have you taken on Spirit Airlines in the last year? And the first answer begins with one to two, Jim, which means you can't say zero. And remember, it says not counting your most recent trip. (laughs) So, Jim, as long as flying airplanes doesn't have anything to do with numbers or math, I think we're okay here. And I'm willing to move on.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know about you, Len. I I don't necessarily like it when the pilots are that away. right? Yeah, okay, go. Yeah, sure.
0: Huh? Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? All right. Our friend Jenny uh, sent in a Disney survey with a new question I haven't seen before. And Jim, Jenny made a a comment about this. And I want to ask you about what the comment means too. Here's the question from Jenny. On your last trip to the Walt Disney World Resort, what was the total amount you spent, including travel, accommodations, meals, park tickets, merchandise, entertainment, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And if you're uncertain, please give your best estimate. And there's a checkbox that says, I couldn't even estimate. Mm -hmm. So Jenny put in a number. It's basically a field with a dollar sign next to it. And you enter a number. And Jenny's question is this, doesn't Disney already know how much I spent on most of this? And the reason why I think that question is important is this, mm-hmm. I wonder if Disney's trying to gauge the perception of cost, not the cost itself. Like if you said, for example, mm-hmm. I think it costs $3,000 and Disney's analytics also thinks you spent $3,000, mm-hmm. then Disney knows that your other survey answers are based on you having a pretty accurate idea of the value you got for your money. But let's mm-hmm. say that Disney analytics says that you spent $3000 and it knows what you spent on hotels, tickets, meals because you put it all in your room, right? Mm-hmm. But you say that you think you spent $6000. Mm-hmm. Disney might think that you perceive your cost as much higher than it was. Conversely, if 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 you think oh, I spent $1500 and you, and Disney knows you spent 3 grand, mm-hmm. right? that would lead them in another direction so I wonder if this is a if this is a question about perception
1: if we go with the Occam's razor yeah. you know, the low hanging fruit here
0: isn't is that they the, just don't know that they have no way well, of knowing no. all well no no I mean that's
1: together. the thing
0: you know, eh, that could be it
1: people yeah. have this illusion about the Walt Disney Company this monolithic you know corporation with theme parks yeah and that, that
0: they get everything right they get every decision right all the time so, and they have and perfect what to the point yeah. that they
1: actually divisions of the company actually talk to one talk one to each other yeah 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 so yeah. this may be a case of okay what we've been able to harvest from our folks is this yeah. number. What do you think you spent? It's like ooh, we're off.
0: That's actually a great point because uh, there could be things that uh, that aren't included. Like if you if you've somehow split the hotel cost mm-hmm. among multiple people in the same room, right? Mm-hmm. That's actually a great a great point. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Huh? Yeah, okay. because you'd have to put one person's credit card down on the room. But let's say you split the cost among two people, like and you Venmoed each other to. Oh, okay. That's a that's a good point. Awesome. I try. All right. Yeah, good question. So we'll see. If anyone at Disney knows, uh, let us know. Okay. All right. Uh, longtime listener John Parmalee sent in a couple of Disney surveys from a recent trip. And there are a couple of new questions in there. And I want to focus on one in particular on today's show because it has to do with dining. And we just talked about the uh, Disney releasing that new dining offer. Jim, let me give you some background on this. Uh, John ate at uh, the Via Napoli restaurant in Italy's Epcot Pavilion. And that's what this question is based on. So the question is this. Why did you decide to dine at Via Napoli on the particular date that John went? And there are a set of answers here um, that I think are interesting. The first one, the first one at the top is, I saw a social media post about the restaurant. The second one is, a friend, family member, or acquaintance recommended it. The third was, I liked the children's menu selections. The next one is, uh, I've eaten there before, and it was at one of my top places that I wanted to dine at. Next one was, it was the only restaurant that had availability. I think, I think Disney should know that that is never the response for that because Vianapoli is so popular, it will never be the last restaurant with availability. They shouldn't even show that. The atmosphere and theming uh, made it important. I had a good previous experience and John noted that. A cast member recommended it. Uh, it had available reservations that worked best with our schedule. The other members of my party wanted to eat there and it offered good prices and value.
1: This is a pretty wide net. Um, yeah,
0: mm-hmm. but I love how they put social media at the top.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And you notice the first half—the first half of these—all mm-hmm. are recommendation-based, or uh, all of the all of the things around recommendations from other people are at the top half of the list. And I don't think Disney's randomizing this. Mm-hmm. I think this is the way it's shown.
1: You know, Via Napoli is not a restaurant that is struggling.
0: No, it is one of the most popular and highest-rated restaurants mm-hmm. uh, in all of Walt Disney World, consistently rated. In the top, like top 20, like definitely in the top fifth.
1: Yeah. Don't get me wrong. If they had this question for Space 220, it's like, okay, that yeah. I get. But this is. Yeah. Restaurant,
0: Mar- you know, the old restaurant Marrakesh, right? If they yeah. were, or if they had it for um, uh, a tangerine cafe, right? Then yeah. I would I would start asking questions about this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, very interesting.
1: Hmm, all right. Yeah.
0: Social media posts in the Queens. Yeah. Lots of good answers there. So yeah, uh, definitely, John, thanks for sending this in. This is uh, this is new. If anyone uh, has any ideas about why they might be asking these questions, let us know in, uh, in an email. And speaking of listeners, let's go to listener questions, Jim. Our friend Andrew mm-hmm. writes in with this request, and he says this. And by the way, this is for you listeners to help Andrew out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work at a major Orlando theme park, and my management team is letting me do something for the area for Disability Awareness Month. I'm wondering if you or your listeners know of any famous Disney people who had a disability. I know about Mary Blair and Robert Sherman, and I'm just curious if anyone knew of any more. Thanks so much as always, Andrew. So Jim, famous Disney, I'm assuming theme park people here who had a disability. If if our listeners know of any, Jim, can they email
1: you? Oh, absolutely, and I will uh, please send the, uh, that info along to Jim at Jim Hill Media, and I in turn will share this with Andrew. I'd uh, love to see what he's going to do with, with this info once we pass it along. So March, is uh, is March Disability
0: Awareness There you go, the March. Disability Awareness fund. All right, uh, another email from Ben, mm-hmm. who says, on last week's show, you mentioned that the Walt Disney World Railroad had returned after a four-year hiatus. Mm-hmm. I am reminded that in my past life, I was an apprentice at one of Her Majesty's Royal Dockyards hmm. at Devonport would take in nuclear submarines, remove the fuel, decontaminate the boat, cut holes in the hull and decks, pull out all the big equipment, replace it, weld the holes, put in a new reactor, commission the boat, and send it back out to sea.
1: All in less than four years. <laughs> but it's not uh, a railroad, Ben. So you know. <laughs> but as a follow-up question, Ben, at any time in in the shipyard. Did Doc Brown bring his train in for service? Because, again, I'm not entirely sure what that thing at the end of Back to the Future 3 runs on.
0: When I was uh, writing back to Ben, I uh, I, I, instead of writing – because Ben worked on uh, Her Majesty's Royal Mm -hmm. Dockyards. And I had to write His Majesty's Royal Dockyards because, you know, changes – Oh, my
1: God. That's right. That's
0: right. And I I told Ben, like – I, I will never get used to writing that. <laughs> like, it's, it's just—I've well, I've it gone had this been, long. What yeah.
1: sixty plus years? Like, yeah, like my entire
0: the, life. Right. There so, we go. Yeah. yeah. His Majesty's. It's just. It's. I, and I understand the uh, the UK is getting ready to change the currency next year, that to put cool. uh, Charles's picture on it. Yeah. That's going to be weird. You know, the first people who get those new bills are going to be like, "Yeah, this is fake. <laughs> like, <I'm, laughs> I've never seen this before." <laughs> Very true. Very true. <laughs> All right. Our pal Asim writes in uh, response to last week's topic about Steamboat Willie entering the public domain in 2024. And he says this, it's very relevant to note that Song of the South becomes public domain in 2041 or 18 years from now. And given that Splash Mountain will be phased out, Disney seems unlikely to claim it is in active use and at risk for confusion. What does Disney do? Disney presumably won't let someone else monetize Song of the South, but they likely won't want to do so themselves. So which wins out? Do they come up with some modern and presumably palatable way of reinventing the Splash characters and maybe Zippity-Doo-Dot too? Or do they do a very low-key release of a documentary about the history of the movie and the evolution of our understanding of the topics, thus claiming they are actively using the IP, at least to somewhat muddy the waters? What's their strategy there? Yeah, Jim, this is super interesting. My, my thought... Mm-hmm. Initially, is they're just going to let it go, mm-hmm. like it's not worth. It's not whatever incremental amount of money that they would get by keeping the copyright, and I think that number is pretty close to zero. Uh, it's just not worth any sort of controversy about it. But what do you think?
1: I actually got into feature animation, in Florida, when they were working on this project. Are, are your lawyers allowing you to talk about this? <laughs> when you say got into. They left the door open. What am I supposed to do? It's it's practically an invitation. There we go. The film that Mark Hen directed on, the, the John Henry short, that was actually put in production as part of an elaborate plan to sort of decontaminate Song of the South. They had conversations with Whoopi Goldberg. They had conversations mm-hmm. with James Earl Jones. In fact, it was the conversation with Maya Angelou that actually derailed this whole project. But they were going to create a way to release Song of the South where you weren't actually able to watch the film without watching a like 20-minute documentary in front of the film, explaining the times, the history, you know, why yeah. it was done, the way it was done. And then after Song of so South, again, without, you know, you were going to have to watch yet another like 10 or 15 minute long documentary explaining that the modern Disney company understood about this. But these are the sorts of stories that we are now telling about, you know, African-American folklore. Yeah, and,
0: I, I think this is just a no win situation for them. I don't. That, they, let me, but but they, let me just say. Mm -hmm. I would pay money Mm -hmm. to watch Whoopi Goldberg's running commentary of Song of the South. Like, I would would pay $39.95.
1: And here's one of the reasons that Disney went after her. Not necessarily because they already had the relationship with uh, Sister Act and the like. It was that Whoopi Goldberg actually has the world's largest collection of Mammy dolls. She's very into— By the way, how did you how did you know this? (laughs) Like, how does that piece of knowledge? I've been following this (laughs) you know this story forever because again during the Iger years. In fact, Bob Iger used to joke from the stage about how they would take bets backstage about how soon during the Q&A session, does somebody come forward and ask about Song of the South? And oh, I'm sure, yeah. Bob, once again, would have to tell the story about how every year I, <laughs> I pull out yeah. Song of the South, I put it in the DVR, I watch it, and like, nope, not releasing nope.
0: it. And it's going back, yeah. Yeah,
1: and no. every year they would make a random. and every year they'd lay down, no. this is how much money we can make off of this movie. Why won't nope. you release this?
0: Nope, and nope, nope,
1: nope, nope, Yeah, nope, so. The amount of
0: money that they would... They would make was probably a rounding error mm-hmm. on Disney's hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue. I mean, what are they going to make a, a, a hundred million? I mean, why would you, <laughs> why would you risk that? I mean, a hundred. Don't get me wrong. Hundred million dollars is a lot of money. It is a it is a tiny fraction of Disney's overall revenue, and it's probably not worth. It's definitely not worth alienating that many people for because they would lose a hundred million dollars in revenue, and I don't think they'd make a hundred million. I think it, but it's like you.
1: Dollars. You have so nailed what frustrates so many folks on the creative side of Disney. Oh, it didn't make a billion dollars. Yeah, darn. That's the whole thing. When that's your yardstick, when every everything has to be a field goal from you know the opposite end of the field. Yeah, everything
0: everything has to be a touchdown. You can't settle for field goals, right? Yeah, I, I I get it. Yeah,
1: that's how you end up with this series of safe bets. You end up well. Let's redo the Little Mermaid. Let's redo Snow White.
0: You mentioned this, and you know one of my one of my hedge fund friends was talking about how. Five years ago or ten years ago, the the big bet mm-hmm. was on franchises, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone went all in on franchises and yep. studios stopped making the smaller independent movies that might turn into hits, right? Mm-hmm. So Disney and other studios had come up with this strategy of betting big on large franchises, the Marvel mm-hmm. Avengers franchises, the Star Wars franchises, and it stopped making smaller independent movies that might cost like 25 or 50 million dollars but gross 200 million right they basically went all in on these long term franchises and what my hitchman friend says is that now you're seeing sort of an exhaustion mm-hmm. by consumers about these franchises that like every incremental star wars movie or tv series doesn't quite do as well with a few exceptions doesn't quite do as well mm-hmm. the avengers stuff is now getting sort of watered down to the point where you probably couldn't name all of the adventures, right? Stuff like that. And I wonder what the strategy is for those things going forward.
1: It's a tough time when, I mean, you know, for example, Hollywood basically stopped making the romantic comedy because those are dialogue driven and dialogue driven films don't play well in, in China. Whereas you don't have to translate an action scene, you know, an explosion, right. you yeah. know, in English plays as an explosion in, in Chinese. But conversely, though, to watch what happened to the romantic comedy, how it's like, OK, hang on, come to me, Hallmark Channel, how hugely popular that has become on television. That the romantic comedy just left theaters and mutated and became this thing that, you know, how many Christmas movies between Great American Country and Hallmark and and Lifetime and the like got produced just this past year? 100, 150? 150?
0: Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, you basically, you can watch them from uh, from October on.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. But it's a very strange time to be working entertainment because people are still sussing out the whole subscription streaming service thing and yeah. how we're actually supposed to make money off of it.
0: That's a good point. So I I, um, I want to talk to you uh, later on about what uh, Disney's plans are for whatever's left of uh, Hulu. We'll talk, <laughs> that, uh, we'll talk about that on, a, on another show. Okay, cool, cool. All right, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim talks about the 1955 home movie from Disneyland that has the best footage of Disneyland's old Stagecoach ride that I've ever seen. We'll be right back. Now streaming only on Disney Plus.
1: My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour.
0: Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour.
1: Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's
0: version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. You and I got an email from our friend uh, Seth Johnson over the holidays around, uh, or sorry, from a friend of his Mm -hmm. who specializes in digitizing old movies. Mm -hmm. And it was a home movie that was taken in Disneyland either in late 1955 or early 1956. Mm Mm-hmm that includes some of the best images of Frontierland in Disneyland from opening year that we've ever
1: seen. Yeah. Notice Len used the the phrase opening year because Mm. Walt spent everything he had to get that place open in July of 55. And the first couple of months, it was kind of shaky ground and there wasn't a lot of money to plow back into the park. So to look at this footage, to look at how sparsely planted The park was I, I, the I,
0: landscaping I, is rough. Like that's my my overall impression of the film is like mm-hmm. this is dirt. <laughs> like, <Yep>. This is <laughs> for Tierland, is basically dirt. Which you know if they if they had gotten giant fans and rolled some tumbleweed across, I would have gotten it. But yeah, like there is no landscaping in the parts of Disneyland that we see.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, as you mentioned. You get to experience from, uh, I, I want to say the gentleman who's holding the camera. Hang on, I actually have a name for him. Yes, Sherman, uh, Sherman W. Carter. You get to experience the stagecoach from inside the stagecoach. You get to look out at the park. In fact, did you catch that detail as they're going by the rivers of America and there in Fowler Harbor are all all of the jungle cruise boats parked?
0: Yeah, because uh, Jungle Cruise hadn't uh, was still being worked on, so it either hadn't opened mm-hmm. or uh, was being uh, renovated at the time. But you can see it it disassembled almost like it's Lego pieces. By the way, um, Jim, for people who want to watch this as we're talking, the URL that we gave to this is tinyurl.com mm-hmm. slash Dish Disneyland Stagecoach. Capital D for Dish, capital D for Disneyland, capital S for Stagecoach so it can follow. Yeah, but I mean, basically it's the Jungle Cruises Tinker Toy set that needs to be uh, some assembly required.
1: <laughs> that it is. That it is. Yeah. But okay, That so a lot of us did not get to experience this Edge Coach at this yep. point because it, it ran for a relatively short time, but it was always part of what Walt wanted to do with that Family Fun Park. In fact, mm-hmm. if you go back to the memo from 48, uh, which Walt wrote for the project he wanted to build right across from the studio at Burbank on the other side of Riverside Drive, Mickey Mouse Park. It's right in there you can actually pull up the the document where, you know, Walt explains what he wants to do. And you can look down at the concept art that's out there and there's the steam train that circles the property. There's the steamboat that takes guests on a scenic cruiser on a a waterway that's at the center of Mickey Mouse Park. Mm Horse-drawn trolley that'll take guests through a proto version of Disneyland. There's only two lands. There's the main village, which is basically Main Street, USA. And then there's the western village, which eventually became Frontierland. And... In the frontier land section, or excuse me, the Western Village, we have the stagecoach. And here's a quote from, from the prospectus. The stagecoach will leave the Western Village, pass through the farm, grow through the Indian Village, and pass the mill. It will be by a special road. And that's basically the setup we got in, in Disneyland, right? Well, it is. Uh, but everything that Walt mentioned eventually showed up in Disneyland Park. I mean, for example, mm-hmm. the farm became Big Thunder Ridge, opened at Disneyland Park in June of 86, ran through January of 2016. The Indian Village with its dance circle and trading post, that was where Disneyland from day one uh, in 1955, continued through 1971, only got Mm -hmm. shut down after the folks in California took a look at what was being built in Florida, and it's like, ooh, that country bear thing. We want one of those. No, we hit. want two yeah. of those. So that opens in March of 72. And finally, Harper's Mill, the mill, that opens up over on Tom Sawyer's Island back in June of 56. Now, the stagecoaches also were a day-one operation. They were up and running in Frontierland in uh, July 17th, 55. Though Disneyland's stagecoaches actually predate The start of physical construction of Disneyland Park. There's this photo of Walt on the Disney lot. Uh, it's dated mm-hmm. July 27th, 1954. And it's Walt in a white cowboy hat, and he's got his foot up on the step that leads into a stagecoach, and he's beaming at his grandchildren who are inside of this thing. And you know this is on the Disney lot because right behind him is the animation building.
0: So, Jim, the uh, I, I actually made this photo public for our listeners. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, tinyurl.com slash... Dish mm-hmm. Stagecoach One, so capital okay. D, capital S, and then the number one. Yeah, but it is on the it's on the lot. Uh, it says Disneyland Stage Lines U.S. Mail, and it's a really nice restoration of a of a carriage.
1: That's a brand new coach. Len. Oh. That, that that's Disney Studios Carpenters. Who Walt, you know, again, it was just one of these things where it's like, okay, you finished building a film set. I got some blueprints for you. I want you to build this. <laughs> How familiar are you with the Pony Express? <laughs> there we go. But it's one thing to build a stagecoach in yeah. the style of the 1860s. Quite another thing to operate it like.
0: Yeah. That's, this is the thing, right? This is the difference between movies and running a theme park. A movie stagecoach has to work for like three minutes in a couple of scenes. A theme park stagecoach is a day-to-day thing, and it's different.
1: It's a four-horse pitch. And Disney prided itself on the horses at the park only worked every other day. So when you factor in the the horses, you need to pull the trolley. And remember, there was also the conestoga wagon. There was also the buckboard. uh, You probably need
0: eight horses per stagecoach.
1: Remember, you're (laughs) running multiple stagecoaches as well.
0: Yeah, Disney starts operating a stable just for these things. That's exactly
1: the Circle D that was backstage at Disneyland, run by the Pope family. They had at the absolute height a herd of 200 horses and pack mules backstage. Holy cow. That had to be fed, you know, that, that had to be watered and cared the for. the I mean, maintenance on this is just incredible. Okay, you also need a trained driver who is familiar with the way, you know, has to be, be able to run a <laughs> 4 I, I, I could
0: I can imagine the Craigslist ad wanted, stagecoach driver.
1: <laughs> Not kidding. <laughs> there we go. You had to have a driver who was not only good at handling a four horse hitch, but also understood the way stage coaches actually operated. That you had to balance your load. You know, you could oh, only right. put right because
0: these are these are um, the stagecoach shock absorption was on like metal springs, and so if you if you overloaded one side or the other, the whole thing would tilt. And they would become unstable. Oh, my
1: God. Yeah, this is a lot. Remember, Len, this is the 1950s. No seat belts. No safety harnesses. Yeah, things were different then, Jim. You you know? Know, but, but again, so you put six to eight guests inside the stagecoach. And then you put another four to six up on the top, riding, you know, facing forward and back. And unless the driver, as he was loading the coach, did it properly, Len, these things are prone to tipping. A couple of very famous accidents in the park where the, you know these things just went over, oh, they're running them on dirt roads, too. Oh, yeah, wow, yeah, this is wildly inefficient. Jim. <laughs> no, 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 totally. And, and, and at the same time, remember the footage we're looking at from this home movie from '55-56 not a lot to look at, you know. I mean, in fact, they, they have oh. a quick shot of the canal boat, you know, the canal boats of the world ride, which again, the digital staff at the time. Jokingly referred to the float or, or float slowly by muddy banks that look up at weeds. Right? Yeah,
0: Jim. I've seen more picturesque drainage ditches. <laughs> like this is just not attractive. Like God, God bless him though. I mean, the people people paid money for it and they were uh, apparently satisfied. And to Disney's credit, they did pour a lot of money into this. Right? They made yeah the the Disney that we the Disneyland that we have now is vastly different. Then opening day. And to their credit, they they kept investing in it and that's how
1: we they got They did. Got. They did. In fact, what's there's a Los Angeles Times story from May of fifty six. Park's only been open for 10 months at this point. But Disneyland recovered its initial construction cost, $17 million, and Mm -hmm. Walt, as soon as Roy said it was okay, began pumping money back into the park. And and in fact, for the summer of 56, he took $2 million and and was looking for ways to improve the park. So uh, 100,000 of that was spent to build an entirely new Indian village in Frontierland. The thinking here was they shifted it deeper back into the park uh, mm. to increase Oh, to pull
0: people back in the, yeah, yeah okay. There we go. Increased capacity.
1: They also spent $250,000 on Tom Sawyer's Island. Again, expanding capacity, you know, build the rafts, get people over to the island, give them more to do in Frontierland. land. Three hundred thousand dollars was spent on the installation of the Disneyland Skyway that would transport wow. guests from Fantasyland to Tomorrowland and back again. And then that's a that's a few million dollars in uh, in twenty twenty three money. Oh God, yeah, 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 yeah. And in the immediate vicinity of the Fantasyland Skyway station, they spent two hundred thousand dollars to turn. We were just talking about the canal boats of the world ride to turn that into the storybook land canal boat ride, you know, with it elaborate gardening and and full fully detailed miniatures. But Lynn, the big ticket, the one that Walt spent most of that two million dollars on, that was actually to 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 address the problem you see in this this home movie, that there's just not a lot to see in Frontierland. So that's why they built Rainbow Caverns, which You've talked about it on the show because you love that Mickey Mouse short that said it. It's the a little
0: thing I was going to mention. Yeah. The, so there, there are two Disney attractions at the top of my list for things that I wish I was able to experience. And they're both in Frontierland and Disneyland. And one of them is the Mind Train through Nature's Wonderland, and the other one is the Rainbow Caverns. Like, those are the, the two attractions that I regret mm-hmm. never seeing live.
1: When my family did our cross-country trip in the summer of 1970s, we did do the mine train to Nature's Wonderland, and mm. even then, it still held up. It was still, I mean, it, it was the finale of the attraction, and it did not oh, yeah. disappoint. Now, again, they spent five hundred thousand dollars building uh, Rainbow Caverns, and there's a, a quote that's associated with Walt, you, you see it reprinted all the time these days. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. That's Walt talking about Rainbow Caverns. Oh, is that where that's from? Yeah, I, the gimmick of the inside of Rainbow Caverns is you you entered the space where you had, I wanna say 15 to 17 different waterfalls, but each of the waterfalls had a different phosphorescent dye in it. And the entire space was lit lit, lit up with, with black light. So it was this... Oh, is that how they did it? There we go. All right. But, but oh. here's the thing. The waterfalls are in very cl- close proximity to to each other. And the fear was, as they were setting up this attraction, it's like, these things are going to flow. They're close to one another. There's going to be Splash what's going to prevent the dyes from bleeding into one Makes another? Sense, yeah, so
0: everything becomes brown. No, no, yeah. that's
1: it exactly. And, and <laughs> in fact, what was interesting is that Werner Brown is at the studio at the, at the same time and the Imagineers are like, he's supposedly the smartest guy on the planet. And and it's just like, let's take this to him and see what he says. And he came back and said, yeah, in a week, it's all going to be brown.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we, sh- we should have led with a, a German rocket scientist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Because okay. <laughs> when you said Werner von Braun, I was like, oh, "This has taken a left turn that I okay. I have not anticipated." So what do they end up doing?
1: Because I mean, it is—it's true, right? Walt turns to you know, and, and Claude Coates, the gentleman who's in charge of the Rainbow Cavern project Walt Werner says it's impossible and again that's Walter's fun kind of fun to do the impossible and oh. you figure it out and it's and what they eventually did it figured out is that if they put these these subtle guides along the trough that that limited the amount of splash they wouldn't bleed into the weather and they actually held their colors through the entire. And this is the thing that thing didn't shut down till January of 1977. So, 21 years that thing held its colors. So, each fountain
0: had its own enclosed, not open water circulation system.
1: There we go. With its own. Oh, clever. Yep. By the way, because they spent half a million dollars to upgrade, and again, remember that this was an an attraction that serviced uh, Frontierland Mine Train, the pack Mule, as well as the stagecoach, it was like, okay, we got to get some of that money back, so... The entire operation got changed to the Rainbow Mountain attraction, and it became the okay. park's very first D ticket. Really? Yeah, you know, Len, I I love old press releases, uh, and I, I have to share something that Eddie Meek, who was Disneyland's publicity person wrote out ahead of the July 1956 opening of this attraction. So it was like, after guests travel around Rainbow Mountain and then head out, out across the rainbow desert, they'll then venture into the beautiful rainbow caverns with their phosphorescent waters. And it's like, it could be me, Len, maybe, you know, give it a So colorful is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how brown with all of bland, the chance to dine at the Rainbow Restaurant. There <laughs> we go. And in fact, Walt had to have rainbows on the Brand Fifty Six because this is the exact same window of time that he's developing the Rainbow Road to Oz over at the studios, which is the that never shot film that was supposed to star Annette Funicello and a number of the Musketeers. But you know, the,
0: Jim, all all this tells me is that Disney marketing has a long history. Of using a very few specific words over and over again <laughs> to get the point across. That's it's a tradition at this point. Is there, what I'm going we with. there we okay, go. There we go. Okay. Well, let's get well, so that so that's where the quote. It's kind of fun to do
1: the impossible. Comes from. There we go. Wow! Awesome. I can't believe we've never told this story before. And only came across it researching today's tale, which, which again, back to Disneyland stage coaches, which as of 1956 got renamed the Rainbow Mountain stagecoach. <laughs> They continue to operate to the fall of 59, but this attraction continues to have operational challenges. They're low capacity. They're prone to tipping over. There's 200 horses. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Rough back roads and ruts are putting a strain on these made accurate to period vehicles. So uh, it got to the point where for every two stage coaches that were out on stage, there was a third backstage being serviced. And the time involved and the cost... Finally, got too much even for Walt, who, who remember, you know, treated Disneyland like it was a far larger version of that miniature steam train he had in his backyard at Homeby Hills. So, for a Walt at that point to go, wow, that's too expensive, that tells you how costly it was to operate the stagecoaches at Disneyland. I mean, for one point eight million dollars, Jim, you could, Walt could have given every writer ten dollars,
0: <laughs> in in nineteen fifty nine money, and been like, "So sorry, this isn't running. Good luck
1: with the rest of your day." Yeah, and and probably come out ahead. You're not wrong, though. The, the, interesting, you mentioned that figure, that, that the one point eight million, because again, he shuts this ride down in the fall of fifty nine. June of nineteen sixty is when mm-hmm. the Rainbow Cavern Mine Train gets a brand new name: Mine Train to Nature's Wonderland, and. Mm. Now, when guests climb on the pack mule or get on that mine train, they have a brand new experience. They are now riding past two hundred and four mechanical creatures. In the publicity material for the opening of Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland, the very first time you see the word audio animatronic. Also, what you got as part of you know this one point eight million, you got a brand new mountain at Disneyland. You got Cascade Peak. Did you remember this? It, it used to face onto. The Rivers of America was 75 feet tall. It had the three waterfalls. I know there's a lot of people who, you know, love the mountain ranges at Disneyland, but it's worth noting that first mountain uh, was Rainbow Mountain in 56, then came the Matterhorn in 59. Then in 1960 came Cascade Peak. It would be another 17 years before Disney would add another peak to its mountain chain, uh, that Space Mountain, in May of 77. And then the very next peak, Big Thunder Mountain, that came at a price. So, Jim, is Cascade Peak still there? Well, no. Okay. In order for the wildest ride in the wilderness to begin rolling through Frontierland in, in September of 77. Uh, okay, okay. That meant that Mine Train to Nature's Wonderland had to shut down. And and it did, actually, January 2nd, 1977. But Cascade Peak survived another 22 years. Really? It stood at the shore of Rivers of America through the summer of 98, built in 50, uh, this built in 60, you know, for the Demine Train to Asia's Wonderland. Mostly made out of wood with okay. th- three waterfalls going through it. And I, I'm told that Toward the end, the only thing that kept the mountain standing up was the termites were holding hands. (laughs) Termite saliva? (laughs) There we go. go. And and finally, you know, one of the safety inspectors at Disneyland, you know, walked around inside, came out and said, it's time. And, you know, late summer of 98, it it came down. And they did a controlled demo. And once they shut down the stagecoach ride in the fall of 59, they parked about back by the Circle D Ranch. And they, they sat there uh, for decades, uh, lovingly tended to. In fact, they, they rolled one out in 2005 and displayed it on stage as part of Disneyland's 50th anniversary celebration. But after that, Len, I mean, Circle D, or at least the backstage at Disneyland version, Right. Shut down in 2015. And that was for uh, Galaxy's Edge. That's it, exactly. and So there's uh, nothing left of these uh, original mountain ranges except for um, the Matterhorn? If you walk along, for example, Big Thunder Trail, you can actually see a, a chunk of the old mine cars through Nature's Wonderland. In fact,
0: Right, so if, if you're walking north uh, mm-hmm. so that um, Big Thunder Mountain is on your right, then yep. the thing on your left, they, mm-hmm. they do have a vignette. Mm-hmm some of the old railroad tracks right
1: they do they do and in fact what's funny is they still have one of the the jumping fish gags that used to bedevil the mechanical bears in bear country it's like ooh, that fish if i could just get it it's still that effect is still working in that pool (laughs) And again this is amazing to think that's 62 years 63 years that's still working that gag still works.
0: And so, Jim, what, what was what, what did the did the what was the mountain range for for that that, that we see on the left? or the uh, uh,
1: well, that I, I think that was actually the back exit out of Cascade Peak. We're looking at okay. with that, that train.
0: So that's the part that's left. The yeah, part, that, uh, that, Casc- that's all that's P- left there. 16. And um,
1: Interesting. Okay, cool. I don't know if the stagecoaches wound up getting transported over to the new Circle D Ranch, which is located in Norco, California. Maybe somebody can, can, one of our listeners know a little bit more about that. But if you want to see these things in prime, their prime, as Lynn mentioned with that tiny URL, go check out this video of the, uh, that home movie from late 55, early uh, 56. And based on this footage, you know, the Disneyland stagecoaches looked like they were a lot of fun to ride when they weren't tipping if, over.
0: If, if, you, if, you, if you lived. If you if lived. You lived until there the we go. Yeah. So, so that, uh, that URL, again, is tinyurl.com slash dish. Disneyland Stagecoach, capital D for dish, capital D for Disneyland, capital S for stagecoach. Yeah, this was uh, fantastic. And uh, thanks to Seth for sending that URL in. That was really fantastic.
1: Really Really appreciate seeing
0: this stuff. And Jim, we learned Mm -hmm. the origin of it's kind of fun to do the impossible. We
1: did. We did.
0: You continue to surprise me, Jim. We've done 400 and some shows.
1: It's a pointless fact, it's at my disposal.
0: All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show into Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We've just started a series on Walt Disney's 300-plus page FBI file, so something fun to talk about. On next week's show, it's the history of Disney's Swiss Family Treehouse. Jim will give us the history of that unique attraction and a preview of what to expect with the current Disneyland redo. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be covering the Force MD's classic Tender Love with Keith Sweat at the new edition Legacy Tour with Keith Sweat and Guy on Thursday, March 30th, 2023 at the State Farm Arena in beautiful downtown Atlanta, Georgia. You know, Jim, I always suspected Aaron was a fan of New Jack Swing. <laughs> While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Rider Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.